agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Kimberly Weir, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University, and I'm talking to Jennifer Shuba, associate professor of international studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. She is a former demographics consultant to the U.S. Department of Defense, the author of The Future Faces of War, and recently released 8 Billion and Counting. Hello, Jennifer, and thanks for taking time to talk to me today about your new fascinating book about how sex, death, and migration shape our world. Hi, Kimberly. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to share this book with everyone. Um, so to start, let's find out a little bit about what your book sort of overarching ideas are. So one of the main arguments in your book is that the story of the 21st century is less about exponential population growth than differential population growth. Can you explain the difference between these? Absolutely. So uh, when we look at the the previous century, it's really astounding how much global population changed during that time. We started that century in 1900 around 1.6 billion people total in the world. But by the time we ended the century, it was at 6.1 billion. So there was just tremendous exponential population growth um, throughout that century. And of course, we're on the cusp of being a planet of 8 billion people. So you know, certainly we still have total population growth, but I think the more interesting dynamics come when we drill down and look at the differences in the world. That 8 billion is really uh, made up of a big divide between higher income countries and lower income countries in terms of demographic trends. And so we know that the countries with the lowest income have still really high population growth still that exponential population growth, you know, countries like Nigeria, for example, populations double every few decades. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's a significant and growing number of countries that have very low fertility, high life expectancy, and low, no, or even shrinking population. And so I think there's this big divide in terms of of all three things that, that make up the the title of the book, Sex, Death, and Migration, between these developed and less developed countries. And, and that, I think, characterizes this particular moment. I think it's really interesting because I, I think my students and a lot of people just assume that everyone in like the developing world is just poor and there are millions of them. Like just, just keep pop, you right. know, overpopulating. But that's not the reality of the situation. And I think that your book really reinforces the differences in the fact that like e- emerging economies like the higher end of development are countries where they're they're close to aging out of their window of opportunity. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the really sh- the shorthand is to talk about the divide between developed and less developed countries. But, you know, in the book, I go into much more detail. It is exactly what you talked about, that there is tremendous diversity within those groups as well. It's really astounding how rapidly population trends have shifted, even for lower income countries or lower middle income countries. Just I have to say, actually, that was one of the things that surprised me the most in writing this book, because even though I teach and write on population issues, you know, constantly. 
when I sat down to write and I had to really frame it out, I noticed that since I'd started teaching, a lot of these trends had really changed. And so one of the big takeaways from the book, as I think about how this book can be used by students, by practitioners, is that trends change fast, but our thinking doesn't always change so fast. And for example, there are really only a handful of countries that have super high fertility in the world. But I bet if, you know, even those of us who are, are well-educated in the subject would still think that that number is much higher than it actually is. Um, and I think that's something for us to explore much more because in understanding how so many countries on the lower income levels have been able to slow population growth through rights-based family planning, through education, investing in people, um, that's really useful lessons for that handful of countries that are still have really high fertility and are, you know, plagued by conflict, have a very difficult time with economic development and so on. Yeah. And I think that that goes into um, another point, which is as a political scientist, I didn't really associate while I was aware of it, didn't really associate how important demography was to politics. So why should people actually consider this? You know, I think geography gets all the glory. Everybody loves maps and, and any international relations professor probably has, you know, dozens of maps hanging around their house in the office. Um, but population is just as important. But I would actually I would argue it is far more important than geography because people are the foundation of everything. People are our soldiers. They're our voters. They're our workers. Um, and so understanding, you know, who these people are, their identities, their ages. Um, their skills, it gives us greater insight into those bigger questions that drive us all as political scientists. Like, you know, why are some countries poor and other countries are rich? Why are some countries mired in conflict and others experience, you know, decades of peace? And so there, you know, population is one of these domestic determinants of broader issues. I think it's, um, to, to just put, it, put an American angle on this for the politics guys, listeners, I think, um, it's common to see a lot of doom and gloom articles about the trend of population decline in the U.S. And I was wondering, why is it that people and countries fear population decline so much? Yeah, I think, you know, there are a couple, couple of angles we can talk about with this one, um, and we can certainly hit the U.S. politics angle. So in general doom and gloom cells. I mean, I, when I wrote this book, it was, and, and it's kind of been a characteristic of my career. I've always tried to be the anti doom and gloom person. I've always tried to be very rational and say, well, look at, here's our theory. Here are our empirics. Uh, I, you'll occasionally catch me doing some clickbaity titles, but hopefully once you click on that inside it, you'll see that I'm trying to really, you know, do some systematic analysis, but that comes, you know, there may be a penalty that comes with that because People are not attracted to that as much. It's much more um, attractive to, to buy a book if you think that inside it holds the key to why we're all dying, you know, while the world is ending. Uh, so I think we have this natural tendency towards that. But I think with population in particular, there's tons of fear. And we may get to this later about migration because there's a lot of fear with that. But, you know, as I had said, people are the foundation of every society. I think that's what scares so many when it comes to low fertility and population aging and population aging, by the way, is just um, it, it comes from a combination of low fertility and and uh, 
low mortality, so long life expectancy. And I like to think of it as where's the center of gravity of a population. If we lined up everyone in the society from youngest to oldest and asked the middle person to raise their hand, and how old are you? You know, in some countries like Niger, the youngest country on the planet, demographically speaking, that person is like 16, 17 years old. In Japan, the person in the middle would be 48 years old. So very different center of gravity. And so Japan is our oldest country, demographically speaking, in the world. And so I think there's a fear that when a population ages and that it will be like when an individual ages, that will, you know, the same cognitive declines and physical declines that accompany individual aging will happen to a country that is aging. So I think that's where a lot of those fears come from. And they are, by the way, unfounded, I believe. I don't think that's the right model for us to talk about population aging. I also think it goes back to just fundamentals of power that states see population as one of the elements of national power. And so there's a question about whether or not a society that is seen to have you know, fewer potential soldiers every year, a shrinking workforce can continue to be competitive in the global economy, could continue to have you know, secure nation, could they project power outside the borders. Um, and all of our language around population aging and demographic shrinking is all negative. It's called demographic decline. We don't even allow for it to be potentially a positive thing, which is a shame because it actually is a positive thing. You know, in most cases, population aging is a result of having great health care so we can live longer, healthier lives and feel secure that the children we do have will live to adulthood. So we don't need to have seven or eight of them to ensure that if you make it to adulthood. You know, when we flip it to the U.S., um, if we ask that middle person to raise their hand, they'd be 38 years old. So the United States is also experiencing tremendous population aging. And we're actually going to see that accelerate in the coming years because U.S. fertility, as many of these headlines lately have reminded us, is low. It's below replacement. Replacement's typically seen as 2, 2.1 for a little margin of error. You got to replace, you know. The mommy and the daddy, basically, biologically speaking. And U.S. total fertility is around 1.6. Report came out from U.S. Census recently that 73% of U.S. counties had higher deaths than births between 2020 and 2021. So, you know, in the United States, I think we have some particular dynamics that actually are worrying. So I, I said a second ago, I'm not alarmist about population. Population aging is, is, can be great. But in the United States, that mortality segment of, of population size does have some worrying trends because even before COVID-19, life expectancy in the United States was starting to decline. And it is not nearly as high as who we would consider our peers in the world. And so I think that's where we might be warranted in raising some alarm that U.S. population trends could constrain the ability of the United States to be competitive globally. There are so many directions I could go with what you yeah. said. So many really interesting things that you cover in your book. Um, so uh, where to start? Um, 
I definitely, one thing that goes along with aging, since you've spent a lot of time talking about, I, I thought that it was interesting how you talk about how the concepts like old age or retired or dependent are really changing. And I really liked your, why is it that we don't see gray pride t-shirts? Can you comment on this? Yes. So, you know, I, for the same reason that, that I think you know, the taking the model of individual aging and extrapolating from that to national level aging, I don't think that quite works. I think we have a lot of other misconceptions about population aging. And, and as political scientists, one of the core questions about aging is, does the size of demographic groups translate to their political power? That was actually my first question as a political scientist tackling demographics. And so that's what I wrote my dissertation on back in the mid 2000s. Um, and I looked at the three oldest countries in the world, which were Germany, Italy and Japan. and you know, it makes sense that the size of demographic groups would translate to political power in democracies because we think of the size of voters. But we also we have to go a layer deeper, which is what I, I did in my study and say, is do people vote based only on their own immediate interests? And of course, the answer is no, they don't. So you know, we don't see gray pride T-shirts out there, um, partly because age is a stage of life. It's not necessarily an identity. And I think, you know, as you listen to this podcast, you can start to think about people, you know, you know, some people have two sets of grandparents alive. Some are Democrats on one side and Republican on the other. They can have really different political leanings, even though they're the same age. Sometimes you might say Duh, to this, but we were using that to to make, uh, you know, assumptions about what population aging would do. It is hard in some democracies, most of them, to get um, retirement age raised or Social Security benefits cut. Um, but it's often not just older voters who don't want that to happen. And that goes along very well with a lot of times the reports that I see about Social Security benefits and the threat that it's going to run out. We hear this all the time. And you mentioned that people, the average age in the United States is 38. And so we have a lot of people who are moving towards that direction with not a lot of people paying into that. So is this something that's a, a realistic fear based on what you just said about aging? It is a realistic fear. Um, but I think what, where we have to add some nuance is that it's not going to play out the same in every country. And so you know, if I'm advising U.S. policy community on this, I would say the United States needs to be more worried than some other countries that are also experiencing population aging because we are so we have such partisan divides in the country and your listeners know more about this than I do it makes any kind of bipartisan reform incredibly difficult so domestic us politics is a hindrance to to making the kind of reforms that might be needed to have some fiscal sustainability in the face of population aging I think democracy in general is actually um, in a tough spot with population aging. You know, there's been a lot of talk, and I, we might get to this in a bit about Russia and China, which are two other rapidly aging countries in the world. And I've always argued that if you've got your political science hat on, do not think that population aging in Russia and China is going to look just like it did in Western Europe. We know what population aging looks like in Western Europe, because this is really the first region of the world to experience aging. But you can't take what happened there 
and then extrapolate from that onto every other aging region of the world because there's a lot of differences. And in simply put, democracies face different pressures from the citizenry than do autocracies. So it's just, I think we can get ourselves into trouble when we just say population aging looks like this without understanding that political institutions and interests are really different in different settings. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I started reading your book about the same time that Russia invaded Ukraine again. Um, And then I just saw last week that Russia held its annual spring military draft and already they have sent over 60,000 of these young conscripted men into Ukraine completely unprepared. And so this goes very much to what you were just saying about, it, it just surprised me to see in your book, you know, about uh, your explanations about declining population and the fact that Russia would actually risk losing more of its population by starting this war with Ukraine. Yes. I mean, one of my motivations for writing this book in the first place was what I saw while working at the Pentagon and then staying connected to the policy community since then, which was um, the, the beating the drum that demography is destiny. And it's really not. There's no political scientist who should be arguing that because we're trained to look for more. But um, when I was at the Pentagon in the mid 2000s, that was during the time when Russia's population was shrinking by sometimes over half a million people a year. That was due to high mortality, really low life expectancy for males of about 58 years. That's really low. Um, In fact, at that time, uh, when Russia's life expectancy was 58 years for males for the lowest income countries in the world, life expectancy for males was 54. So that just to give you some perspective there. Um, Fertility was also really low. And and so the overall population was shrinking. And I heard constantly in the defense community that Russia's population trends would spell the end of their um, great power status. And in fact, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates published an article in Foreign Affairs in 2009 that said, you know, hey, as an old Sovietologist, I, let me tell you, Russia's demographics are going to check their ability to project power. And I've always waved my hands and said, no, 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 no. Demography is not destiny. And in states, if the threat level or the motivation is sufficiently high, we've seen throughout history that states are absolutely willing to do what it takes to to meet their national security goals. And so, you know, there was a discussion of Russia in the introduction of the book about that. And there's a a chart or a graph even in the end of the book, charts and graphs at the final chapter of the book that talks about why. It's really dangerous to have that view of Russia and that the consequences of seeing demography, Russia's demography as destiny are that we're unprepared for to view Russia as a competitor. We're unprepared for their aggressive behavior. And then, like you said, pretty much as it comes to hit the bookshelves, Russia invades Ukraine. And so, you know, I think my conclusion from all of this is we have terrible theories in political science for understanding the relationship between domestic population change and foreign policy. We just, we just don't have it. Um, and so when people have again used the, well, individual population aging means decline, inability to innovate, um, constraints on your physical movement. So let's take that and put that on a country. 
then, you know, you really run the risk of being wrong because individual aging and population aging aren't the same thing. Yeah, and you explore this same power transition theory to explain China's military buildup, despite the fact that not only is it aging, but it's also got a shrinking population too. So how does this differ from what's going on with Russia? Yeah, I think China, the same kinds of conversations, as you said, have been had in the defense community about China's population situation. So a lot of people may know their workforce, the new entrance to the workforce, it's already shrinking. So China is moving rapidly to be an aging country. Um, interestingly, U.S., China, and Russia have in common a median age of 38 years. So we're really all right in it together. Um, China's has been rapid because fertility was so low, so that accelerated it. Um, and a lot of the conversations about China have been, oh, it's going to be the first country to grow old before they grow rich. And so what does it mean to experience population aging when you haven't first had you know, full decades of economic development? I think we could argue that with Russia as well, though. So I've always had trouble with that argument. But I think the, the core of the issue comes down to desirability bias. And that's something I talk about in the conclusion to the book as well. I think there's a tendency with demographic trends for the seer to see what they want to see. So if we trace U.S. policy community views of China's population over the last you know, several decades since World War II, it's like Goldilocks. At first, they were, they were too big, way too many people. And that so many people, so many mouths to feed would constrain their ability to be a great power. Now it's, oh, too few too old. There's not enough workers. And uh, that's going to constrain China's ability to be a great power. And it's never just right. And it's never just right because people see what they want to see. So at least in China, I think there's some differences in the mortality side between Russia and China. Um, Russia did go a long way to reverse its very low life expectancy for males but it still has one of the largest gaps between male and female life expectancy globally. And I think we have a really good reason to believe that the economic sanctions and the social and political upheaval in Russia right now will actually exert some downward pressure on all their demographic trends over the next decade or so. Um, it's different in, in China where the population is on the whole healthier. And so, you know, you don't have to raise alarm as much on the, mortality side. So you're talking about Russia, and I thought it was really interesting that um, for a long time we heard about alcoholism amongst males in Russia as, as a contributing factor to declining population um, in Russia. And uh, certainly, would you agree that the situation you, you mentioned with Ukraine, that uh, that the situation will only exacerbate the gap between men and women's life expectancy? Yes. I, I mean, you know, I think and, and your, your question about you know, why would a country with increasingly fewer, if that's the OK way to say it, young people um, would risk those young people's lives. And it, it, it is a puzzle if if you're just focused on on the population part of it. Um, but I think, you know, their calculus is, is not, oh, let's save these individual lives. It's for some greater purpose. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a continuation of decades and decades of underinvesting in the health of the population. It's just in another form. 
Um, there's, I think the role of alcohol in Russia, it's a trope, but it's, it's a trope that's got some teeth because, you know, lots of public health studies show that it is indeed um, bootleg alcohol, um, use of, you know, unregulated alcohols, like, you know, drinking perfumes or, or home cleaner products of really low quality alcohol um, that have contributed to tremendous issues with alcoholism, accident and suicide that have kept Russia's mortality so high. And it's only going to go higher because they've shown that it is economic and social stress that led to those alcohol abuse in the first place. Well, that's exactly what's going to be happening now. That's going to intensify. Yeah, I think that it's easy for Putin to play the long game here, but the, you know, for the population, it's not quite as they're the ones who are enduring all of this and the sanctions and so forth. And I thought that it was interesting, too, your explanation of China's population is getting too old too soon to become a, a global North country was really interesting. I'd never really thought about that before, that a country could sort of time out. Yeah, and I don't really know if I buy it because I, I think that there can be an advantage uh, because, all right, so if we think about social welfare states, you know, you know Western Europe develops a social welfare system that predates its population aging. So therefore, when the population ages, wow, that's where you really end up in this, you know, fiscal trouble where you've got these generous promises to growing numbers of elderly. And the same time, you have shrinking working age populations. Well, if you have population aging in a society that hasn't set up the same system, then you have far fewer promises to a growing elderly population. So relatively speaking, you could actually do better. Um, you know, I think some of the concerns about growing old before growing rich do have to do with household savings and you know, standard of living. But there has been greater income diversity and population aging in states that have had population aging than I think we really recognize. I charted it out once. And um, while most of the countries in the world with high median age are democracies, with very few exception, we're looking at Russia, like Belarus, I think two more um, in addition to Russia. The income range was much higher. So, uh, you know, I think we don't know that much about what it's like to have population aging, period, because this is a new trend in the world for, for all of humanity. Um, but that would be one area to look more into to say, could there actually be some advantages of it? So you were talking about Russia and China, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that because, you know, it's quite fascinating. But I want to get to some other important points in your book as well. I wasn't familiar with Hale until I read your book, but I thought this was such an appropriate acronym. So how much does increasing life expectancy really matter when measured against Hale? I think that Hale is the key to us really understanding the impact of population aging. And Hale just quite simply is how long do we live healthy lives? And so, you know, there are specific definitions about, you know, assistance with daily living, but basically, are you living your last, you know, what's the difference between how long you live and how long you live healthy? Can you continue to be, take care of yourself or even let's be instrumental about it, be a productive member of society. And the goal should really be to have the difference between your healthy life expectancy and your total life expectancy as small as possible so that you don't have lots of years of life lived in poor health. That's really where 
at this macro level, countries get themselves into trouble financially. And at the more, you know, household level, families feel tremendous strain. And and we can all think about what it's like to, you know, care for an older relative, um, what it does to the household finances, what it does to the stress levels and the health of the caretakers themselves. So, you know, in some countries like in Japan, they have very long, healthy lives. That means that if people wanted to stay in the workforce at older ages, they're able to do so and still be productive. And in fact, the average age of exit from the workforce in Japan is 71 years old. That's higher than official retirement ages. This is why retirement age is not really the best use for us to understand our best statistic for us to understand aging. But in the United States, the the healthy life expectancy and the life expectancy um, overall, there's there's a big gap there. So we have greater number of uh, years lived in poor health. And so, you know, we really want to think about making the most use of our population, again, being instrumental. Um, And so that means we have to invest in the health of the population so that we do live longer, healthier, more productive lives. And that definitely goes back to what you were talking about earlier, what what we were talking about with Social Security benefits, and not just in the United States, but other countries that these pressures are on the the system. And some of these countries don't have that infrastructure in place to deal with or cope with these. And so we end up seeing um, older people who the, the onus goes on their families to take care of them because the state structure is not there. I think this is really ties in really well with Um, What you talk about, too, with leapfrogging because of health issues and how this affects people in developing countries, especially. So could you talk a little bit about that? I think it's amazing that we've come so far in terms of global health in the last century that communicable diseases are no longer the top killer anywhere in the world. Uh, It's non-communicable diseases like cancer, strokes, and so on. And that that is good news, full stop. But we have to go back to that divide we talked about that's really shaping the 21st century right now between the countries that are lower income and higher income. And I think the issue in the lower income countries is premature deaths. So that's statistically considered before age 70. So while it might be good news that it's not communicable diseases that are the top killer, It's bad news for the individuals who are experiencing non-communicable diseases because the health infrastructure is not there to take care of them. And so they still have premature deaths. And so I think that's what that's what can be hard from a global funding and attention perspective. It's been much easier to rally funding and attention for diseases like malaria or HIV AIDS than it is heart disease in Botswana, you know? And and I think that's really the dilemma that many of these countries are facing right now is that their health situation is different than it was 30 years ago, Um, but it doesn't mean that there is no challenge left in the health field. And in fact, same issue as uh, developed countries would have, we want people to live the longest, healthiest lives possible. 
Yeah, we could definitely move into talking about COVID now, but I think we're all sort of sick of COVID. So maybe if we have time, we'll get back to that because I'd rather talk about migration. <laughs> um, yes. And, and it's really fascinating to me because whenever I talk about migration in my classes, my students are always astounded at how low the percentage actually is. So why do you think it's so shocking for people to hear these statistics? Yes. So, uh, you know, the quiz, the pop quiz in the book is what percentage of the world population do you think lives outside the country in which they were born? And I ask that of audiences all the time, you know, very well educated and, and experienced practitioners. And 99.9% of the time, people vastly overestimate it because it's actually under 4%. It's been between 2 and 4% for decades. I think that people overestimate it because, well, for, for two reasons. One is that the effect of, around the world, it's uneven. So in the United States, and so often, I'm most often talking to the U.S. audiences, and we have the highest number of migrants of any country in the world. So there you go. You know, off the bat, we're going to overestimate based on our own experience of having so many migrants. Um, but I think the second issue is that population trends in general engender a lot of fear. And so, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about alarmism with fertility issues, but it's, it's even more intense with migration issues. And I think the fear that accompanies mi migration is what really drives us to overestimate it. And that's because when people move, they don't just move, they move their whole identities, they move their religion, they move their culture, and they move it into a place often that is different in terms of culture and religion and identity. And so it's the, those two things, you know, put together that really can challenge can, concepts like what, who are we as a nation? Uh, and that's what most countries in the world actually really debate when they think about immigration. And so you've got countries like Japan, oldest country in the world, as we've mentioned, shrinking workforce force, shrinking overall population but they have chosen not to open the borders to immigrants in large part because they do not want to change uh, the national culture. Other countries in the world have more open borders. And um, we could think of the Gulf states, for example. They bring in workers, but they bring them in on a temporary basis. Um, Singapore segregates people in terms of housing, and they don't let people integrate into to the national community, again, because they don't want to deal with the changing national identity. And then there are countries that are, have you know, very different structures like Australia, Canada, and even the United States. And they do constantly face these questions about national identity and who we are and how open should the borders be. And so it's, it's a really vibrant area for research and practice because migration, the same migration trend has really different outcomes in really different countries in the world. Yeah, it's really interesting. Japan, a very homogenous society and, and very much wanting to keep it that way. And it's really interesting, I thought, that you mentioned Singapore because Singapore is actually really culturally diverse anyway. There's no Singaporean identity, yes. right? It's like you've got the Malays and you've got the Indians and you've got the... Well, and you know, I think what's interesting about that is they want to preserve that. that they say, this is our, our balance of these three major groups and we're going to keep it the same. We don't want to change it. Yeah, yeah, and it's really interesting that, or like a country like the United States that was just made up of migrants and migration, and now we're trying to like preserve what with this American identity, and what is that exactly? 
I think it's really interesting. You, you give a number of examples of using demographic engineering to stack the deck in favor of a particular identity group, and that goes very much along with what you were just saying. Could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, demographic engineering became something I, I was really fascinated with writing this book. And, you know, I've known about it for a long time, which is just, let's simply call it the when the government manipulates the population. And they can manipulate fertility trends, mortality trends, migration trends. But as I wrote this book, I, I really became fascinated with it. And that will be the subject of my next book, actually, um, focusing on demographic engineering in the United States. There are lots of examples of demographic engineering. And in fact, I would say there's no country in the world that doesn't engineer its population. Some of it is really overt. Um, we could just use fertility, for example. A lot of people know about China's one-child policy. That's an example of demographic engineering. It was moving from the principle that fertility was too high, the population was growing too fast, and leaders in China were concerned that um, it would constrain economic growth. And so it was a, an anti-natalist policy put in to reduce fertility. And that's really interesting that, that you mentioned that you, we were talking about China and Russia before. These sort of pro-innate and anti-natalist policies just seem like such knee-jerk reactions to like, oh, let's try to fix this. And people don't recognize that it's there's a lot more to it and there are a lot more implications to what's going on. Absolutely. And yet every country still does this. I mean, even in the United States, you know, there are headlines about U.S. fertility being lower than ever every year it's lower than ever, or it's, the, it's a record low um, and a record streak of being low in the United States. And, you know, governments go to, they immediately go to, well, we should give some cash to folks to encourage them to have more babies. I mean, this could be Russia giving actual, you know, here's $10,000 if you uh, have have a child, you know, and you get it on a certain birthday or whatever. In the United States, I mean, it's tax season here. I just finished my taxes and I get a little tiny child tax credit. Same thing. Well, it's it's like too with with um like the qualifier for some of these countries though is that you have to be of that national origin, that ethnic, right? That that's what's favored. That's what the, they want to grow those populations, not immigrants. <laughs> Absolutely, Kimberly. It's not all created equally. It's not just, hey, anybody wants to have a baby. Um, it's, it's we want certain people to have babies and maybe not other people to have babies all everywhere, everywhere. Speaking of which, I really love the tippy story that you include in your book. Why, why is it such a great way to introduce the causes and effects of migration? Yeah, my editor wanted to cut it. She said, everybody knows this story. And I said, no, they really don't. I promise. Um, so this, I, I, I opened the chapter on migration with this, um, the story that I love. And I think there've been several documentaries made about this. Um, and it has, and it's about manicures and it's about migration and manicures. And I, you know, I love a, a good manicure and many people, you know, it's like a cultural reference in society that, there are so many Vietnamese nail salons, but when you open up the data, yes, there actually are so many Vietnamese nail salons and there's a fascinating story as to why. So I think it's around 80% of manicurists that are licensed in California are Vietnamese and almost half of manicurists in the United States. And I think it's a really fascinating story because it starts off as one about refugees. Um, Tippi Hedren, who's this 
actress famous for being in The Birds from Alfred Hitchcock. She had these long, glossy, manicured nails that that people really admired. And she was visiting some um, Vietnamese refugee camps and doing some outreach with Food for the Hungry as an international relief coordinator. And a lot of the, the women in these camps were complimenting her on her nails. And she had this idea to bring in a small group of women and to teach them the art of silk nail wrapping because they could make more money with that. From there, it really grew into um, a, a, an amazing story of a group that started off as refugees, but then kind of switches to this economic migration um, that you have, you know, this amazing network where they've even, you know, they've got their own schools where the language of instruction is Vietnamese. There's a lot of ties back to Vietnam now where people are brought over to work specifically in these industries. And, and I think it's an interesting story. So many reasons, but one thing to take from it is the blurred line between political and economic migrants. And it's a it's a happy story. It's a story of success when you think about Vietnamese migrants um, working in the nail industry. But it's a tremendous challenge overall. And we've seen a lot of countries in the world use as a justification the inability to tell the difference between a political and economic migrant um, for refusing refugees. Um, we saw this with the Rohingya population where there would be, you know, thousands of people on boats stranded because, you know, Australia's prime minister would say, yep, some of these people are probably political refugees, but some of them are just looking for a better life and we're not going to let them in that way. We saw the same thing when we, there was a, um, uh, lots of economic migrants from Syria, I'm, excuse me, lots of migrants from Syria going into Europe and the argument that mixed in with people who would qualify as political refugees were people from Iraq and Afghanistan who were just taking a chance um, as part of this wave and hoping to make a better life. And so it is really hard to untangle political and economic motivations for migration. And that's part of the reason why we see um, forced displacement such a long and and painful issue in the world today. I think it's interesting, too, that a lot of people just sort of think of migrants of any sort as just really super poor, desperate people who are the ones who are on the move. But your book very much dispels this notion. Yes. I mean, you know, hey, I've lost my passport right now. I got to figure out where it is. And, and, <laughs> and it's hard to get another one. You got to have money transportation. You got to have the know-how just to even do that. Um, and, and so when we think about where people move, who moves in the world, it is typically people with a little bit of knowledge and means who can even make the journey to begin with. I, I think that this is all so very fascinating and I really enjoyed reading your book. And I, there are so many more things that we could talk about um, that I guess people will have to buy your book and read it too. To yeah, there's a lot more in there. And I would highly recommend it. Um, so to wrap up, naturally you conclude your book by considering the future of global population. <laughs> so how optimistic are you about the future of the planet given the growth, the unpredictability, the urbanization, the aging trends, these things that you talk about? 
I am actually really optimistic about world population. And I have to say that surprised me as I wrote the book because I teach a lot of environmental politics classes mostly. And I teach migration classes and both of those have a real tendency toward doom and gloom. I have even had um, students nickname my global eco-politics class, the apocalypse course before. It's just, it seems like it's all bad news. So when I got to writing the last chapter of the book and I, I was really reflecting and trying to draw bigger lessons, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm optimistic about uh, world population. And I think there are, are two big reasons. One is to look at how far we have come. And global life expectancy, it goes up every year. That's a great thing. It's trending in the right direction. And infertility is trending downward. And I see that also as a reflection of positive dynamics. You know, it's a part a reflection of health that, you know, we, we can see that our, if we have children, they'll live to adulthood. So that overall is a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, the, the second reason that I'm optimistic about it is that we're all moving towards population aging. We're entering this new era of humanity. We haven't seen before where all of the countries in the world will have low fertility and long life expectancy. And, you know, while I could have a whole other podcast episode talking about some of the challenges of that, the, particularly the challenges that women experience reconciling work and family as a driver of low fertility, you know, that that's not a good thing. You know, overall, it, it reflects us, you know, really progressing as a society to live these longer, healthier lives. And so, you know, when I think about the relationship between population and environment in the future, I'm always wary of the overpopulation debate because I think it takes the onus off of developed countries um, who are really the ones that that do the most polluting. We have the biggest environmental footprint. Um, we know that in the future, global population growth will slow. It's already slowing. And the, the, the number of years between 8 billion and 9 billion will be longer than it was between 7 and 8 billion. Uh, so I think we can start to redirect our conversations globally to quality of life and say, you know, how can we have um, a sustainable way of living in the world where everyone is entitled to a high quality of life without polluting the planet so much that it diminishes our quality of life. And so I think we'll have more nuanced conversations about that in the future and can kind of leave behind this overpopulation debate that has shown to be completely unproductive anyway. Yeah, and I think that you talk a lot about the sort of window of opportunity and cashing in on demographic divide and so forth, stuff that's really interesting and in how countries were able to take advantage of that. But then there, you know, like, is there hope for Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I'm so amazed at how many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, have been able to invest in secondary education for women and um, reproductive health for women and have seen fertility fall so rapidly in the last few decades. Um, I think being for countries to look at what has worked in the past in other regions um, in uh, East Asia, for example, when you have the bulk of the population of working ages, there's the potential to reap a dividend from that structure, but it's not automatic. And you have to have investments like promoting exports and encouraging FDI 
and investing in human capital. And so to the degree that sub-Saharan Africa and some countries in Latin America will follow those policies, they can really see a great dividend from their boost of working age population. Yeah, and I'm sure that some of this uh, comes from your your point of reference of having worked in Rwanda. Do you want to do you have a bit of time to talk a little bit about that as you work as a demographer there? Well, I only visited Rwanda, but it made such an impact on me, partly because I was there for an international conference on family planning. So certainly, you know, that um, the being there for that work was really, um, you know, pointed me towards towards the book. But, um, you know, I thought Rwanda is a really fascinating country. Of course, it's small. And of course, its form of government like Singapore lends its lends to being able to say, let's make a decision from the top and implement it nationwide. But, you know, there was a real, it was really clear that the message the government was promoting about rights-based family planning and reproductive health had made its way to the population because we would have cab drivers ask us, you know, oh, what are you here for? And we'd say, we're here for some conference on family planning. And they would say, oh, and then they would tell us why family planning is important and why having a smaller family size would really you know, lead to greater economic growth. And, um, and I thought, wow, that's, you know, aren't cab drivers everywhere. They're like the best source for information, aren't they? But I thought, wow, that, that, you know, that message has really gotten across. And, and of course we see that Rwanda's total fertility rate had declined. Um, and it wasn't just Rwanda, um, but, but visiting, you know, family planning clinics, visiting um, health facilities in more rural areas and and looking at, you know, the particular challenges that countries face in terms of just physical infrastructure, um, cultural challenges with what kinds of um, contraceptives people prefer versus, you know, would not be willing to use. It was it was a really formative experience for me um, as someone who has I've often focused on East Asia. And so, you know, I can't wait for some of these COVID restrictions to give me the opportunity to travel even more and look at some of this stuff um, on the ground because I look at a lot of macro level policies, but it's it's great to see how they translate all the way down to the community level. Yeah, and you'll have to get your find figure out where your passport is, right? Passport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree though. I, I feel like I could talk to you another whole hour um, just about the reproductive uh, rates and freedoms and health and, and fertility issues, uh, which is a really big part of the front of your book, I thought. Yeah. Um, really interesting stuff that that is really important. And I think your example of Rwanda is really interesting too, just how important it is to get, presumably the cab drivers were men, on board with these these uh, fertility sort of policies because they are very much affected by what's happening as well. But a lot of times women are completely excluded and it's just like kind of pushed to the side, yeah? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you, Jennifer, so much for talking with me. I really appreciate you taking the time. I really enjoyed talking to you. And again, I really enjoyed reading 8 Billion and Counting. And I I really highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in these issues. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. 
If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.